I'd rather blend in. I'd rather stand out for the right reasons than blend in for the wrong reasons. That's a great line right there. And that's what we are trying to figure out as Christians in an increasingly oppositional culture. What does it mean for us to stand out for the right reasons? To be willing to be different than the status quo, than the general opinions when God calls us to be different. We don't want to be different for the sake of being different, but we want to be different for God's honor, for God's glory, to be the people he calls us to be. Would you open your Bibles again to Daniel chapter 1? We're going to finish the chapter. We just did the first two verses this morning, but we're going to learn really important things tonight from God's Word. I'm, I'm really eager to dive in. We've, we've got a, an amazing substantive teaching from God's Word tonight, and I, I want us to get everything out of it God has for us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you that we are able to gather here, not by coincidence, but by your providence, that we're here, Lord, and you're at work. We have your Word to guide us. We have the Spirit to use your Word in our lives to transform us. So we pray that's exactly what he'd be doing. And that you'd be helping us each to stay, take steps closer to you and closer to being the people you call us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read Daniel chapter 1. We'll pick it up at verse 3 where we left off this morning. Here we go. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now this is fascinating. So here Nebuchadnezzar is taking over different territories, you do realize that Nebuchadnezzar was a real historical figure. These are true stories in history. All you need to do is visit archaeological sites in the Middle East and around the world and you see how amazingly true the Bible is. People who don't believe the Bible are constantly trying to refute its truthfulness with archaeology and history and they continue to fail miserably at that. The Bible's amazingly accurate in what it says internally and outside of itself. It's constantly being validated by the record of history and archaeology. And here we have this Nebuchadnezzar who is arguably one of the ten most powerful leaders in the history of the world. And he is taking over massive areas of territory. You, you've heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? This, this city of Babylon was a real place, and at one time it was the world power, and Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful leader in the known world. 
And so he's a real figure, and here he's taking over territory. And he did it in a way that was brilliant. He didn't just crush people. He couldn't do that. He wanted to incorporate them into the advance of his kingdom. Why take all these resources, not just physical, but human resources, and obliterate them? Why not use them by enculturating them into Babylonian culture? And that's exactly what he's doing. And if you're going to do that, you're going to go after the leaders in that culture. And that's what he does. He goes and he takes the the most educated, the most astute, the most established, And he creates what could be called a brain drain. The people who are most influential, making the biggest difference, capable of fortifying your human resources in your kingdom, and he brings them into his kingdom. He leaves others behind, but he takes the leaders and he wants to enculturate them, make them part of his culture. He wants to indoctrinate them by helping them to grow in the way of Babylon, in the Babylonian way of thinking. And so that's exactly what he does. It's a brilliant thing to do. And he gives them new names, Babylonian names. And he tries to bring the culture of Babylon into these Jews who've been taken out of Judea. You take them out, and then you make them part of your people. You treat them well. You give them the best food. You, 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 don't, you don't enslave them. You incorporate them into your life and your culture. And that's what's going on here. It's very important to understand culture. You need to be a student of culture. So this week, here at camp, already in the couple of days we've been here, a little subculture has been created. That has similarities to other weeks of camp, no doubt, this summer, but has distinctives because there is a unique collection of people here this week that creates a different culture, a a different sense of humor, a, a different way of going. I mean, you youngsters call it a vibe, right? It's just got this vibe, right? And you like the vibe, you don't like the vibe. It can be sort of hard to explain and define and understand, but you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's you know, it's the way we roll. Hume, Hume Lake Christian Camps has a culture. Every, every local church has a subculture. That's part of a different culture. I talked a little bit this morning about leaving my subculture in Ansonia, Connecticut and going to a very different one within the state of Connecticut. You think that's ridiculous in a little state, but no, there can be very different subcultures. Within, within a small state, within a town, there are different cultures. Within even a relatively small town, it's fascinating. And to understand who we are and how God calls us to be faithful, you've got to be a student of culture. You've got to understand how things go. And you'll never do that if you don't stop and think about why we say the things we say, why we do the things we do, why we think the way we do. And we need to think about all the things that affect the culture we're in. One of the biggest I plead with you to think about is the effect of social media on your youth culture you live in. It's all you've ever known. You see, culture is very often like water to a fish. Until you're out of it, you don't really even realize what you've been in. And so until you step back and think about this culture you're in, you'll never see it for what it is. And sometimes being taken out of it is the best thing for you. That's why traveling is seen as a good thing to do. 
you see, oh, there are different ways of doing things, different ways of thinking, different ways of operating. And so please be a student of culture. Step back. You know, I don't know why, but ever since I was a kid, I sort of have felt a little bit of being on the outside looking in. I'd be at a party in high school. Everybody would be partying and getting drunk. And I, I, I never drank in high school. Just never just looked attractive at all to me. Plus, it was illegal. And, and uh, I would get mocked for it sometimes. But puking didn't look fun to me. And, and it was so expensive, I just didn't understand it. And so, but I'd go to parties, and my friends would say to me, Thomas, you don't need to drink. You, you can have fun without it, apparently, right? It'd be kind of crazy without it, and it was true. And so, so I'd go to these parties, and everybody'd be just going crazy, and I'd stand there, and I'd say, what's everybody so happy about? <laughs> you ever wonder why on New Year's Eve, everybody's yelling and cheering and jumping up and down and making all that noise? Why do we do that? You know, there's this killjoy philosopher named Albert Camus. You know what he said about why people make noise on New Year's Eve? He said it's to drown out the sound of the grass growing on their graves. Wow, I bet he didn't get invited to many parties. I mean, what's everybody celebrating? Another year is another year closer to death. If you want to think about it in that way. So what exactly are we all happy of? Be somebody who steps back. And says, why are we doing this? Why do we talk this way? Why do we think this way? Why do we think likes on Instagram are so valuable? Where did we get that idea? Where do we get the ideas we get? You know, when I talk to people, which I do a lot about important things, I'm constantly asking them two questions. I'm asking, what do you believe about Jesus? And what do you think a meaningful life is? Those are the two questions I'm constantly asking people. And it's amazing. Most people come up with something, right? Oh, I believe God is energy. It's a rhythm to the universe. I believe the universe is, is behind what you're doing. It's for you, whatever that means. And, and I'm, I have somebody in my family, and every time the clock is 11-11, the digital clock, she says, it's 11-11. The universe has your back. To which I say, what in the world are you talking about? And that's what I say. I, I, I honestly, curiously, I say, could you tell me what you mean by that? What's the universe? And why does it have my back? And is that a good thing? And why does the clock saying 1111 have anything to do with that? And a lot of times, people aren't even a half a question deep in what they mean by the words they say. And then I keep asking them, and where are you getting that? Where did you hear that? Where did you read that? Now, you know what's crazy? I've been studying a long time in my life. I studied philosophy and history and theology, and I've studied the Bible, and I've studied literature. And a lot of times, I know where people got the ideas they have when they don't even know. Sometimes I'll just say, oh, you actually got that from Oprah Winfrey. Or you got that from Kanye West, who just said it three weeks ago, and you must have read it in People magazine or something. Or, or 
you're actually getting that, but from Freud or Marx or Dewey, these great thinkers that have so shaped the culture we're in. But, you know, the Bible also shapes the culture we're in. I have a person in my family, and, and um, he's a land surveyor. And I, he doesn't, he's, an, he's an atheist. He doesn't believe the Bible's the word of God. But I was reading in Proverbs, and it said, hey, look, it, it says to run your land surveying business the way you actually do. It says, do not move a boundary stone. In other words, if somebody wants you to change the map so they get more land, don't do it. Be honest. And that's how you run your business. He said, you know, that Bible has some good stuff in it. If you just got rid of all the God stuff, he said. But the God stuff is what it's all about. And he's the one who defines everything. Without him, why not move a boundary stone? Why not do whatever you want? It's Dostoevsky who said, without God, you do what you please. There are no rules. There are no boundaries. And so we've got to think about what we believe why we assume the things we do. Why we think life has the meaning it has or doesn't have. And so we've got to think about culture. Here's a, here's a definition of culture. It's, it's really simple. Culture is just the, the customs, the, art, the, the arts, the social institutions, the achievements of a particular nation or people or order or, or, or social group. So, so Nebuchadnezzar is trying to get these these Jewish guys to become enculturated, to think the way Babylonians do, to feel the way they do, to act the way they do, to speak the way they do, and become part of the culture. It's a brilliant move on his part. Even though it's a radically different culture, he's convinced they can assimilate. And that's the question. Will they just become part of the culture like Judith is trying to do and get her friends to do? Let's just fit in. Aren't you afraid Aren't you afraid, she says. And yeah, it, it can be scary to be different. It can be scary to push against just the way it is. There's a term people use now that they'll throw at Christians when we say we believe something that increasingly isn't held by most people. They'll say, you Christians are on the wrong side of history. In other words, oh, people might have believed that at one point. But that's not the way history's going. Go with the tide, in other words. Go with the flow. And dear ones, we desperately need Christians who are willing to not be jellyfish. You ever watch a jellyfish in the ocean? Just floats around, goes wherever the tide goes, right? We need Christians who are dolphins. That'd be a great Christian school mascot. We have enough eagles. How about a dolphin? <laughs> That, that flies in the opposite direction of the way the tide's going. You know, jellyfish just float along. We need Christian dolphins, baby. That's what we need. And we need to be able to go against the flow. And that's the best thing we can do for the people in our lives who are going with the flow. They don't need you to be a jellyfish. They need you to be a dolphin. That, that's the radical difference that we're called to. But they're doing everything they can. They educate them. They have them read the literature, right? They have them read the books of the time. They're, they're, they're enculturating them. And apparently, these guys do it. It's not like, I'm not going to go anywhere near anything in your culture. No, they're able to engage it in a way where they're willing to learn. It's just not pure abstinence, is it? It's just, just get all that away from me. Now, sometimes it is. But... They're discerning, they're wise about, okay, I'm going to read this, 
And I know it's Babylonian. I know it talks about a completely different view of the world. But I'm going to read it. I'm going to understand it. I'm going to be conversant in the culture God has me right now. So I can speak into it more intelligently, more lovingly. It's not just rejection. And this is the challenge. Rejection's easy, right? Just complete rejection. I'm not going anywhere near it. So how do we respond? What do we do? New education, new language, new food, even new names. Look at the names. The name changes are fascinating. So Daniel, these are all names about God. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is my strength. Mishael is who is like Yahweh. Azariah is the Lord helps God's servant. And look how intentionally Nebuchadnezzar changes their names. Belteshazzar, Baal, a false god, protects the king. Shadrach, I'll do whatever Aku, a goddess, commands. Meshach, there's no one like the goddess Aku. In Abednego, Nabu's servant. Nebuchadnezzar, it means Nabu protects my son. Or protects my boundaries. One of those two things. Isn't that fascinating? He changes the names to which they're called, referred to. Isn't that fascinating? And so he's trying to bring about a complete shift right down to the names that they are called. And we can relate to this. We should be able to relate to this increasingly so. You're part of a fascinating subculture here. We as Christians, wherever we are in this world, wherever we are, even if it's the most positive culture toward Christianity you could live in, we're still exiles. We're still not home yet. It's important to think that way or else you'll store up treasures in heaven, on earth rather than in heaven. You'll make it as if this is your home, but we're all exiles. We're sojourners. We're aliens, as we saw this morning. And so we need to think about what it means to contribute without compromise. To be a blessing, but not to be transformed and conformed to godless culture. And no doubt they're thinking, God, where are you? We're in trouble. We need help here. We need wisdom here. And first, it starts with rejection, right? An eye roll when you say you're a Christian. And people say, oh, you're hateful, you're bigoted, you're intolerant. Anyway, is how dare you tell anyone they should or shouldn't believe in anything or should or shouldn't do anything. It's up to each his own, which is all a way of thinking that they're getting from somewhere, right? And so we've got to step back and have courage to contribute without compromise. So, but the rejection, the eye roll, can become opposition. Well, you're not going to do that, or you're going to say this, or you're not going to say that. It's opposition, and eventually that will lead to persecution. I don't, I've never experienced in my life what I would call persecution. I have experienced rejection and what I would say is oppression, and you will far more than I ever will, as I said this morning. Now, I want you to think about the culture in which you live here in the Northeast. You're my people. When I come back here, I say to everybody back in the West Coast, I'm going to my people. You're my people. I'm an, I, I will never feel like a Southern Californian, ever. Do I seem like one to you? I don't feel like it at all. I, they make fun of the way I say quarter over there. They, they make fun of all kinds of things I say. My attitude, I always feel more direct 
than most people in Southern California. I, I always feel a little, a little rough around the edges, I, just straight shooter, you know? And, and instead of just saying cool to everything, sometimes I say, I don't think that's cool. And it's like, oh, that's not very nice. And so, so it, it, can be, it can be an interesting cultural thing. Even though I've been there 24 years, I'll always be a Northeasterner in, in my heart. But I want you to realize where you live. You live in a fascinating place. Most Northeasterners are clueless about the spiritual history of where you live. So the, the two greatest religious revivals this nation has ever seen, called the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, were birthed by leaders from this area. Do you know Jonathan Edwards, whose preaching sparked the Great Awakening, he was born in East Windsor, Connecticut, less than an hour drive from here. He preached sinners in the hands of an angry God in Enfield, Connecticut, even less of a drive from here. He, he, had, he pastored a church in Stockbridge 13 miles from here when the Great Awakening was sparked by his preaching. His first church was in Northampton, less than an hour drive from here. God used Jonathan Edwards and his preaching to spark the greatest religious revival this country's ever seen. The second great revival was sparked by a guy named D.L. Moody. He was just a little more than an hour drive from here, right on the border of New Hampshire, where he was born and where he started a school and preached to over 100 million people in his lifetime. And sparked the Great Awakening. Charles Finney was born in, in a little, little town in western Connecticut, not far from here either. Another evangelist of great note. It's amazing what God birthed here, starting with, with the founders of the nation who came to seek religious freedom because they didn't want to be part of a corrupt state church. I mean, this area is the cradle of Christianity in this nation, and it is the birthplace of the great leaders and the great awakenings this nation has seen before. But now, there's such a shift that's taken place. An amazing shift has taken place. So, so they did some research on what they were, they were looking for. What were the least Christian areas in the nation? Least Christian cities. And they asked these questions. Do you um, have a favorable view of having a relationship with Jesus? Do you have a favorable view of the Bible? Is it important in your life? Do you have a favorable view, view of Christianity or the church was number four? Uh, is prayer part of your life? They asked all these questions, finding out how, how positive people were toward Christianity. And look at the results. Look at this. I don't know if you can see this well, but the top 10 least Christian cities... In the country, the number one least Christian city is the Western Mass area, right where we are, the Springfield Holyoke Mass area. Look at the cluster right up there. Portland, Maine, Providence, Rhode Island, Burlington, Vermont, Boston, Mass, Albany, Skecton, Detroit, New York, Hartford, New Haven, Connecticut, Rochester, New York. Is that amazing? Only two are on the West Coast. The rest are all clustered in this area. And so that could be discouraging to you, but, but I want you to hear this quote by this one pastor. It's beautiful. Look, look, look how he views this. Do we have, did I put that quote up there, guys, or no? All right. Here's, here's what he says. This is not a source of discouragement. 
For church leaders in a post-Christian city, the stats are not a sign of inevitable decline, but further motivation to pray, to serve, and to evangelize. One pastor said, it becomes a mission field. The prayer of the Northeast is, Lord, wake up, New England. That's what it is. We shouldn't be discouraged. And I want to tell you something. There's an advantage to being in the minority. There's an advantage. There's an advantage to not being part of cultural Christianity where you're being propped up by church culture and you might not even know Jesus. There's an advantage to that. I never once, I didn't know one Christian in my high school who really was following Jesus. Not one at Ansonia High School, which is amazing because listen to this quote of the, 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 the man that the town's named after, Anson Phelps, who lived in the 1700s. He left each of his grandchildren, he was very wealthy for the 1700s, $5,000 each, and he had a lot of grandchildren. And he said, I want this, this inheritance to be a sacred deposit committed to their trust, to be invested by each grandchild and the income derived therefrom, to be devoted to spread the gospel and to promote the Redeemer's kingdom on earth, hoping and trusting that the God of heaven will give to each of that wisdom of which is from above, and incline them to be faithful stewards and transmit the same to their descendants to be sacredly, sacredly devoted to the same object. Is that amazing? Nobody in my town knows anything about Anson Phelps or, or that he talked like that. Most of my friends were, were, were not Christian or they were nominal Catholics who would go to Mass on Saturday and not Sunday morning so they could go out and party right after Mass and have sex with their girlfriend with no effect of their Christianity on their daily lives. You live in the rich heritage of Christianity in this nation and now you're living in the, the area of the country that's most in opposition to it. So you're going to be a jellyfish or you're going to be a dolphin. Because there is no greater need than this area, than for you all to step up and be the next generation to stand up and be counted for Jesus. That's what this is about, people. That's why we gather like this. Yes, it's great to have fun, but we gather here to be equipped for battle, to be equipped as ministers of the gospel, to get backbone to live for Jesus, whatever that means. And so that's why we're here, to gather as God's people in this way. So how will you respond? Oh, you could just become part of the, the status quo. You could become a jellyfish. You could seek just separation, what people might call you know, fundamentalism. I'm not having anything to do with anything. And you don't have an impact. You can just be a religious hypocrite like the Pharisees were. You, you could revolt. You know, and, and take up arms and, and, like Peter, pick up a sword when Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom advances. You, you could take violence in opposition to it, or you could be part of what the Bible calls the Amharets, the people of the land, the patient ones, the people waiting for the Messiah to come, for God to provide, not taking matters into their own hands. No dreams of violence or power or armies or banners or the solutions being in the secular realm, but waiting on God, praying for his provision, living lives of constant prayer and personal holiness and quiet watchfulness until God comes and provides in the way we desperately need him to so we can be contributing without conforming. We can be resilient Christians. So here are a few things I want us to think about. Let's keep going. Finish up this chapter. You ready? 
Listen how these guys walk into a challenging situation. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself, like the interchange we saw in the video. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So he's, he's got friends on the inside of the Babylonian system. He's not carrying around God-hates-meat-eater signs. He's actually getting friends and people who are sympathetic toward him on the inside of the Babylonian culture, not Jewish people, the chief of the eunuchs. And he says, can, can you give me a break here and not make me eat this food? And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter. He said, all right, I'll work with you. It's amazing and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all the visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. Among all of them was found, uh, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Is that amazing? So, so here are a few things, five things I want us to think about we learned from this story. The first thing is we need to be exile-oriented. True Christians are exile-oriented. We realize that we're not home yet. We don't settle in here like this is all there is. We store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. We, we think about... The day that's coming when our works will be evaluated and we don't want to just live in a horizontal plane. We don't just want to live for the weekend. We want to live for eternity. And so we are people who are exile-oriented. Here's how Hebrews 13, 14 says it. We, for here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Another way of putting it is we're to live in the world, but not of the world. Jesus came to this world as personally and relationally and intimately as he could, but he never became twisted up in it so that he, never, he, he failed to walk with God. And so let's be exile-oriented. Two, let's be Bible-saturated blessings. Let, let's think about knowing the Word of God so well that we can have the discernment to know what we're called to, to understand what it means to be the people of God. We're Bible-saturated blessings. I love the line from the video we saw tonight, someday he'll call us home. And I want him to see the pages of the Bible all over my life. Is that a great line? Don't you fear these people 
Yes, but I fear him coming back and not seeing the pages of the Bible all over my life. I fear him more than the people. So let's be Bible-saturated blessings. We should be blessings to our communities with our presence and with our love for people. It's fascinating. You know there were false prophets coming along saying to the exiles, war against these people, pray for their demise, crush them, do everything you can to undermine them and defeat them. And Jeremiah comes along and listen to what he says. This is fascinating. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. I think we have this this verse, don't we guys? This passage, do we have it up there? Maybe not. Um, Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce and seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you in exile and pray to the Lord in its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. So so you're just not in opposition. I have you where I have you to be a blessing. Yes, to stand strong, but to be a blessing, a polite, respectful, cooperative blessing until you're compromised. Now, we're not exactly sure why Daniel drew the line with this food. We don't know specifics about the food. It may have been food sacrificed to idols. It may have been food outside of the dietary laws of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. We're not exactly sure, but that's where he said, no, we can't go that far. We've got to draw the line there. So that's what he does. And he draws the line. And verse one, verse eight, verse one, uh, chapter one is phenomenal. He resolved himself that he would not eat the king's food. An unwavering determination. He would not eat the king's food. He resolved to do it. He decided ahead of time. He didn't wait till the temptation came. He decided ahead of time. That's how you got to do it. And so when we're asked or influenced or required to be unfaithful to God in some way and to his commands, we've got to resolve to live obedient lives of faithfulness to him. He's got to be our greatest concern. Romans 12 puts it this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love that line in the video tonight. Our bellies don't belong to us. We're not going to eat the food that the king doesn't, our king doesn't allow us to have because he, he, our bellies don't belong to us. They belong to him. And that's true of everything about you, everything. Everything he's given you. Ask the question Paul asked the Corinthians. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? Nothing. Your, your stomach, your, your relational ability, your sense of humor, your sexuality, your creative ability, your recreation time, the money God gives you, the education he blesses you with, athletic ability you may have, whatever it is, a great family you have, hard times that have taught you a lot, whatever God's blessed you with, it's his. It's all his. And so we answer to him for how we use it. And so he's the one calling the shots. Our bellies don't belong to us. Nothing does. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? And when you live this way, God will use you in amazing ways. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. Number four, just a couple more. We need to live as God-fearing people. We need to fear God. They feared God more than man. 
They feared God more than Nebuchadnezzar. They feared God more than the people in this culture, more than losing their very lives when they obeyed God. Daniel demonstrates a fear of God and not man and his unwavering commitment. And we need to be people who cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord. Because the Bible says fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. How often do you pray for wisdom? I pray for it all the time, especially since I became a dad. I desperately need wisdom. Isn't it amazing? The Bible says, you know what comes before wisdom? Fear of the Lord. Knowing who God is. Understanding who he is. It's the beginning of wisdom. And, and so uh, we've got to cultivate a healthy reverence for God, respect for God. Here's a definition by Sinclair Ferguson of the fear of the Lord. We got it, guys? Is it in there? Here we go. Uh, let's, let's just go right to the definition of Sinclair Ferguson. You got it? See it? Is it not there? I think it's there. Well, let's read Jesus' words then. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and have nothing more they can do, but I will tell you whom to fear. Fear him. Let's go. No, no, don't, don't, don't cut Jesus off. Let's not cut Jesus off. Let's go back one, guys. Can we go to that Jesus passage? Is that hard? There we go. Fear him who, after he's killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's Jesus talking to us. So we've got to develop a healthy fear of God. Let's go to this Sinclair Ferguson quote. A proper fear of God is a mixture of reverence and pleasure, joy and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. It's a love for God which is so great that we'd be ashamed to do anything which would displease or grieve him and makes us happiest when we are doing what pleases him. Is that beautiful? We don't hear enough about the fear of the Lord these days. This is central to the Bible. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The God encamps around, the angel of the Lord camps around, encamps around those who fear him. And fear of the Lord is great delight. Jesus, we're told, feared the Lord. It's a beautiful thing we need to learn to cultivate in our lives. Do you need other reasons to obey God but the fact that he is God? And finally, holy freedom. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 puts it this way. We got holy freedom, guys. Holy freedom. Is it in there? All right. Um, listen to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Throw off the hindrances and sin that slow you down. Get rid of everything that slows you down. That means we need to live in the freedom that knowing the word of God brings to our lives so we can have the discernment to know how to live. And life can be so confusing and so complicated that it's hard to figure out sometimes what's right and wrong and what's true and what's false. But when you know God's word, you develop a discernment and you can throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and would keep you from walking in the freedom God calls you to. And it's not complicated to be different in this way. Let me give you one example. I get asked all the time about what dating looks like. And I got two amazing daughters who I love, who are precious to me. But imagine if a guy, and guys have come to me and asked if they can date my daughters, uh, not both of them, one at a time, and, and so they come to me, but imagine if a guy said to me, hey, uh, Mr. Thomas, I, I'd like to date Caroline, and I'm wondering, when it comes to physical stuff, how far is too far? Where's that line for you, Mr. Thomas? Do you think that's the kind of question a dad wants to hear? 
No, no, no. It's not. Can you see what a completely wrong question that is? You see, because we need to go into relationships, dating for one, saying, what is the absolute best, most honoring way I can relate to this person? What is the way I can relate to this person where when we break up, which is highly likely if you're dating in high school, that when you break up, you're both more like Jesus because you spent time together. Here's how I would love for you to think. Say you get to go out. Uh, uh, tell me your name. Preston. Preston. Say you get to go, go out and take the guy your future wife is dating to lunch. And you know she's your future wife, but you also know he's going to date her for the next year, Preston. And you get to say to this dude, okay, you're dating my future wife right now. So I, I want to understand that, that you got this romantic thing going with her, but, but here are the boundaries I have for you as you date my future wife. And then Preston, when you date, just take those standards and apply them to yourself. Yeah? That's just do unto others as you had to have them do to yourself. And Preston, here's the goal, that when you date somebody, you apply those standards to yourself. And if you do that, you know what's going to happen? When she breaks up with you or you break up with her and she marries somebody else, you'll get invited to the wedding. Wouldn't that be awesome? The best man would take it to another level. That's right. But, but you hear what I'm saying? Hear what I'm saying? Date in a way where you so honor one another that you actually get invited to the other person's wedding they get, when they get married to somebody else. And then, Preston, here's the goal. Her new husband comes over to you at the reception and says, Preston, thank you for dating my wife. She's more like Jesus because she hung out with you. And she's a better wife because she spent time with you. Thank you. And he gives you a hug. And then her father comes over and says the same thing. Wouldn't that be awesome? People laugh at me when I talk like this because it never happens because we don't do it that way, right? It's all about me in the process. And that destroys people. That destroys relationships. And you can't even look at each other, never mind go to each other's weddings. It's not that complicated when you know the word of God and you know putting others before yourself and, and loving people the way Jesus does in self-sacrificial ways gets translated into dating and everything else. The way you use the hand God gave you on a computer mouse needs to be sacrificed to God. The, the way you use your intellect, your sense of humor. Northeast sense of humor tends to be pretty cutting and pretty biting, right? Uh, man, I had to pull that way back when I moved to Southern California, right? Because my friends, if we didn't make fun of you, we didn't like you, right? And, and, and so I had to pull that way back because I had to understand the culture I'm in and, and want to love people and do what's helpful to them and be all things all people, like Paul says. So, so we're called to be different. See, dating like I just described, that's different. Isn't that exciting, though, to be different in a way that's going to make the world stand up and say, what makes you tick? Why in the world would you date in such an unselfish way? Why in the world would you live your life so obviously loving other people and laying down your life for them? Why would you do that? And you can say, because Jesus laid down his life for me, and it changed everything. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be men and women who are dolphins and not jellyfish. Lord, help us to be different and love being different, not for the sake of being different, but for the sake of your honor in the good of others, and to be a blessing to this world, Lord. We can't bless when we're just like the world. So help us, Lord, to see our lives as living sacrifices, honoring to you. Lord, show each of us what this means for us today, tonight, in our relationships we have right now, and the way we invest 
our time and all the things you've blessed us with, Lord. We don't have anything that you didn't give us. And so we pray we'd steward it for your glory and the good of others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.